If you have your Bible with you this morning, could you turn with me please to 1 Kings chapter 17. And for those watching our streaming service this morning, if you have your Bible, go to the Old Testament, not quite at the beginning, but around a third of the way through, or well, less than a third actually, maybe a quarter, you're going to find a historical book called 1 Kings. Last Sunday morning, we began a new series of studies on 1 Kings entitled Perseverance, Providence, and Politics. And we went into great detail last Sunday morning about the contextual backdrop of 1 Kings chapter 17. And today we are continuing to focus on Elijah. And last Sunday morning, we said that Elijah came from Tish in Gilead, and he was known as Elijah the Tishbite, and we're going to hear more of Elijah's story this morning. And so, first 17, excuse me, first King 17, verse 7. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, that is Elijah, go at once to Zarephath of Sidon, And stay there. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. And so he went to Zarephath, where he came to the town gate. A widow was there, gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar, so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first make a small cake of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then make some for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. And so there was food for every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Amen, and we trust that God will bless to us this reading from his holy word. Across the street from where I live, I live at the end of a little cul-de-sac, are two wee girls, Grey, who is... 10, her sister Kate, who is 6. And I've mentioned Grey and Kate to you several times in the past. And some evenings after they have their supper, finish their homework, have their bath, they put on their onesies, and then they come over for story time. And we sit together in the big chair and read all sorts of adventures, and it is so much fun. And of course, the lovely Miss Ruth will make for them a snack and something to drink. And after story time, we'll play with Legos on the floor or colour in or do puzzles. And we have a great time. And Kate recently came over to visit. And she came over to visit for one reason. She had new socks. 
And so we sat on the steps and I asked her about her new socks and she also told me about her new top and her leggings. And then she told me what she'd been doing all day at school and about her sister and I was catching up on their day. Now they have a little dog who's a West Highland Terrier from Scotland. He's about this size and grey. And I said to her after she described in great detail her socks, I said to her, the dog's name is Duncan. I said, does Duncan have socks as well? And she pulled herself up to her tallest possible height at age six. And she looked at me with this incredulous glare. And she said, he's a dog. D-A-W-W-W-G. He's a dog. And as if I had suggested the most ridiculous thing in the world. He couldn't possibly have socks as a dog. And my point in telling you that is this. Now, when you are six years old, as Campbell is today, and we mentioned earlier, the world is full of excitement and possibilities. And yet, everything has its little place and should have. And so when something surprising comes your way, you have to kind of take a second or two to get used to it. And last Sunday morning, when we began this recent series of studies in Elijah, we found Elijah finding himself in situations that he simply couldn't believe. Here was Elijah, the Tishbite. He comes from Tishb, a city we, or a town even, where... Old Testament archaeologists and professors and scholars tell us that today we don't know exactly where it is. It seems to have been a small, insignificant town, and if you were here last Sunday, you'd have heard me say that coming from a small, insignificant town, the temptation for us is to think that he was a small, insignificant individual. That he was something of a nobody, we might describe him today. But as you saw last Sunday, and as you're going to see this morning, not only does Elijah find himself in absolutely impossible situations, last Sunday he challenged the most powerful, influential leader in the country, Ahab the king. And you will remember that Ahab was not the kind of person you would want as your next door neighbor. He was a bad guy, a brutal dictator. And yet Elijah challenged him on a moral and spiritual level. And then God drew him away from the court of Ahab to a small brook on the east side of the Jordan River, a place called Kirith. And he's been there for the last three and a half years. And if you remember the first, the end of last Sunday morning, we said that over those three and a half years, as he was able to drink from the brook, any time during the day. And it also tells us that the crows would bring him meat and he would cook it and he was surviving, protected in the middle of nowhere where Ahab the king had no idea where he was. And last Sunday morning I mentioned about how we respond to unexpected changes in our life, change we did not desire, change we did not expect. And I tried to make the point that life is 10% of what happens to us and 90% of how we respond to that, at times, unwelcome change. 
The other thing we said last Sunday, and you're going to hear this refrain run throughout this entire series. We mentioned it last Sunday. Elijah has been maturing and growing in his faith over the last three and a half years, which is about the time from the first section of the chapter into this middle section, he has discovered again and again and again the faithfulness and the love and the profound trust that is necessary in the invincibility of the grace of God. And so we finished last Sunday morning, and this sets us up for our study this morning by saying that the patience which is needed to cultivate character takes time. Quiet spoken wisdom, seasoned maturity does not come instantly. The insightful perspective which adds depth to our discussion and decisions comes with integrity, generosity, determination and humility. Such maturity only comes as a direct result of time alone with God. And so here was Elijah, away from the royal court, away from the threat of Ahab the king, away from any other distractions in a place of solitude and silence, he learned. And what was it we said last week? And let me say it again. I said it minutes ago. Elijah learned profound trust in the invincibility of God's grace for his need. And so that's where we were last Sunday morning. And this morning as we come to this middle section of this remarkable chapter, Ominous words open this middle section. And notice what it says. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Let me pause right there. As you can imagine, living on the eastern side of the Jordan, it's a desert land. Elijah was dependent on the stream or the brook close to where he was residing for his daily needs. And I think you're already there in your imagination. How on earth is he going to survive when his water supply has dried up? And he was in a pretty precarious situation. Amidst all of the quiet, isolation, obscurity, here was Elijah coming across unexpected, unwanted change again. And he's asking himself, how am I going to get by when there is no life-sustaining water here? And Elijah discovers, as most of us have discovered over the years, that there are moments in our lives when God matures us through a process of extensive training and intense testing. So let me say that again. If you're watching from home this morning, taking notes, it's important to get this down. Elijah, like each of us, understands that if we are ever to mature and grow in our faith, we will inevitably go through periods of extensive training and intense testing in God's character-building curriculum. And that's exactly where Elijah has been the last three and a half years, and he's about to discover it yet again. 
So let me ask you, if you were Elijah and the thing you depended on the most for your life, the life-sustaining attributes of water, how would you respond to this brook that has now dried up? Now hold on to that thought and come over here with me because I think some of you have had similar experiences in the last 12 months. And you may be saying, Richard, just around two or two and a half years ago, I graduated from college. I was given a great job, loved the people I worked with. They had stimulated me. I was taking significant courses as part of my work. I was growing in my career. I had been given some promotion. company I worked for had opened a new office and a plant, in fact, in another part of the United States. I had to uproot and move with my wife and wee ones to another part of the country. And we were there about six months opening up this new plant. I was eager to see get into production. And then COVID came along. And it wasn't just for a couple of days or weeks, as we know. Here was a global pandemic, a national state of emergency. And they have come to you and said, I'm sorry, this is not going to work. Our income has dropped significantly. We don't think this is viable anymore. And we're having to pay off our staff. And here you are, having moved to the other side of the country, excited, delighted in all that's taking place. And the brook dries up. What about those of us this morning who are in the medical community? Doctors, consultants, surgeons, who in this last year have become so busy, the pressures and demands have mounted and mounted and mounted in an ever-increasing fashion. And the joy and thrill of going into medicine when you were a young student is no longer there. And you're thinking after eight of ten years of study, all of the expense of medical school, and now the brook has dried up. Or it could be that you are 65 and above. You've worked for more than 40 years of your adult life. You're looking forward to retirement. Delighted and thrilled that your own children are having their children. And blessed to be a grandparent. And excited about seeing wee ones born into the family and growing and developing. And then you start to notice that your spouse is not behaving the way they once did. And you've been watching as these signs and warning lights have got greater and greater and greater and greater. And the person you have loved all these years is showing early signs of dementia. And you're fearful and anxious and uncertain. And your brook has dried up and you don't know where to go or what to do. Or it may be you're watching from home this morning. And your marriage is on the rocks. The only time you speak to each other is to argue and complain and shout. 
And your spouse has become indifferent and the love that once was there has drifted and you don't know what's coming and you're fearful. You suspect separation, perhaps ultimately divorce and your brook has dried up. Or it just may be that in the last 12 months you've lost a spouse. You had no idea that grief so complicated, so overwhelmingly, mind-numbingly sad. And the rich life you once had of a deep abiding relationship with your spouse is no longer there. And life for you is shallow and empty. And the pain at times is overwhelming. Your brook has dried up. And perhaps all that you have gone through has made you to feel abandoned, resentful. Why would God take away from you the very center of your life? Why would he seem to promise a job then take it away? Why would he take you through extensive training, intense testing and then bring it to an end? Why would he do that? Why has he deserted me? Why has he abandoned me? Why has he taken me to this place that is so painful? I don't know what to do or how to respond. Talk of unwelcomed, unnecessary change. And if that describes you this morning, let me remind you of the words from Isaiah chapter 49. If you are taking notes this morning, it's worth taking down this reference. Isaiah 49 verses 15 and 16 when God says, Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. He cannot forget you. He cannot distance himself from you. Every time he looks at his hands, he's reminded of you. God never, ever, ever thinks. Now, Where are Brian and Leslie? How are they doing these days? What about baby Marshall? You know, I just, they kind of slipped my mind. Or Kate, I wonder what she's doing, or Marilyn. What are they up to these days? Stephen, whatever became of him? He knows exactly where we are. He knows exactly every thought that passes through our mind, our deepest longings, the great passions of our lives. That's what this passage is telling us. And as he holds us close each day, as he begins to work in our lives and bring maturity and refinement into our lives, Please understand this. When God is at work in our lives, it is never a weekend seminar, a day-long worship, 
excuse me, workshop. It is a consistent work throughout a lifetime as he matures us and grows us and grants to us all we need. We can trust in the invincibility of his grace for whatever circumstance we're in or whatever's coming our way. We absolutely can. And there's a second lesson here. Please don't miss it. In the New Testament, in the epistle of James, when describing Elijah, describes him in these terms. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Why did Elijah pray that? If you were with us last Sunday, you'll remember in challenging Ahab, he said to him, O king, can you control the forces of nature? Can you lock up the skies? God will not allow it to rain for the next three and a half years until you come to your senses. And Ahab, God is about to bring pressure to bear on you. And so for the next three and a half years, there was no rain. And isn't it fascinating that as a direct result of Elijah's prayer, the brook dried up. Please let me be clear. God doesn't always bring trouble and difficulties and challenges as a result of our prayers. Rarely does he do that. But what he will do is this. He will use every situation and every circumstance you find yourself in in order to mature you in your walk with him so that you have nowhere else to go and trust in the invincibility of His grace. That's what's going on here. And then, once again, unwelcome change comes. And notice what happens. Verse 9. And God says to Elijah, Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. And I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food and so he went to Zarephath. Now that's half a line in a passage of Scripture. So he went to Zarephath. It's about 120 miles. Zarephath was west of the Jordan through desert country for the most part. And he arrives in Zarephath, I imagine, tired, maybe exhausted, looking for something to eat and something to drink. And he comes across this lady who's gathering sticks at the door. And as he sees her, he speaks to her. But before he speaks to her, it is worth remembering this. The name Zarephath in Hebrew means melting place. The noun form as we understand it today, could mean crucible. It's a place where different metals and alloys are put, and the heat is turned up, and they melt, and are then are shaped and fashioned into a piece of jewellery, usually, at a domestic level. Zarephath meaning crucible, to smelt or 
melt. And Elijah was about to be challenged at a whole new level. And have you ever noticed that in the Christian life, those periods of extensive training and intense testing don't always come two and three and four years apart. But in fact, sometimes the opposite is the case. You've just survived a difficult and challenging season. You're catching your breath. You're going about your life. And then something else happens. And then something else. And something else. And the testing of God often comes one after another after another. Just when you think you've survived. Just when you think it's over. It's somehow the heat is turned up again. When I was in my early 20s, I was an electrician. And the company I worked for had a very brief contract in a blast furnace. The three blast furnaces in a place called Ravenscraig in central Scotland. And so we arrived and I worked in and around the blast furnace for about five, six months. And I was fascinated to watch the process of iron ore being delivered in huge blocks and it would be heated and heated and heated. And then what was called coking coal was added to the iron ore. And they were adding carbon to strengthen and temper the iron ore so it becomes steel. You can imagine the incredible extra or extreme temperatures to melt iron ore and coal and turn it into steel. And they would slowly turn up the heat and watch it melt. Then it would begin to become molten metal and it would bubble to the surface. And when it got to the surface, they would skim off the top surface. That was considered slag impurities and they would skim it off and get rid of the impurities and then they'd turn up the heat again and more impurities would bubble to the top and then they'd turn up the heat a third time and more impurities would come to the top and eventually when they had it as pure as they could they would take it to large vats of brine or oil and they would immerse it in the brine and oil and as soon as they immersed it To my absolute surprise, the first time I saw this, I was stunned. The now steel cried out. It began to scream like a wild animal caught in a trap because the fundamental character of the steel was changing. It was being strengthened, tempered, because it would then go into production in order to hold up a bridge, or a building. And when God matures us, when he brings unwanted, unexpected change, the heat is turned up in order to bring out the impurities and he skims them off the top. He changes our personality and our character and our patience and our longing for him. He develops our prayer life. And he gets alongside us and he reminds us of how much he cares for us and loves us and pushes us to that place of 
absolute, abiding, profound trust in the invincibility of God. That's what's happening right here. And when the conversation develops, the widow says, I don't have any food. And Elijah says, go home. Use the little flour and oil and water you have. Bake me a cake, bring it back, and then make some for yourself and your son. And the lady, in the midst of what is an extraordinary morning, she's reminded of the words of Elijah when he says, As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar, a little oil in a jug, and I'm gathering a few sticks. And she's focused on what she does not have, and Elijah is focusing on what she does have. And he says, The bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor the jar of oil be emptied, until the day the Lord sends rain on the face of this earth. What is going on there? She's looking at the negative. He's focused on the positive. And lo and behold, when she goes back to her kitchen, what happens? Please notice this. The widow meets God in the kitchen. The widow meets God in the kitchen. You can imagine that first experience and then the second and the third as the days go by. I can hear her singing that wonderful doxology. Praise God from whom all biscuits flow. Can you hear it? Can you hear it? It's right there. That's what's going on. And her resources never exhausted. Did that mean that this widow and her son had everything they needed? Excuse me, did it mean they had everything they wanted? No, but they had everything they needed. Please notice what Elijah says in verse 13. Don't be afraid. Three wonderful words. Don't be afraid. So what have we learned from this middle section? Number one. Amidst the disappointment, the pain of the experience of the brook running dry, you can trust in the invincibility of God's grace. Number two, when he moves you into a place that is unexpected, when he brings change into your life you could not see coming, you can trust in the invincibility of grace. Number three, When you crawl out of one crucible and find yourself in another where the heat has been turned up again, you can absolutely trust in the invincibility of God's grace. And whatever you are facing this week, however overwhelming, sad, mind-numbingly awful, the disappointments and the uncertainty you can trust in the invincibility of his grace. And please let these three words run through your mind this week. Don't be afraid. Because they're about to take on a whole new meaning next Sunday morning when we look at the final section in this chapter. And please hear this. 
that when God begins to refine us and mature us, all roads eventually go through Sarafath. There's no ducking it. There's no dodging it. There's no refusal to go. For in the process, he is maturing and refining to bring you to a place where you can absolutely trust the invincibility of his grace. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this passage of scripture this morning. Help each of us, please, to read it again this week. To reside there, to dwell upon it, to take the principles we have looked at and apply them to our own lives that we might once again rest in the invincibility of your grace. O God, our help in ages past, be with us, please, in all the days to come. Father, bless us, we ask, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.